Good morning. It's a joy to be with you again. I see some familiar faces from Tuesday, so thank you for coming back. And I see some new faces as well, so thank you for for joining us. If you were here on Tuesday, you recall that we spent some time laying out the foundation of vocation. And I really drew from Henry Nouwen's life and writing and work to lay that foundation. I think it's important that we, we have the foundation in place as followers of Christ so that in whatever life circumstance and season we find ourselves in, we know what the core of our vocation is. And that is simply to grow in our understanding of God's love for us, uh, expressed most powerfully in, in the person of Christ, and to share that love with a world that is so hungry for it. We talked as well about the myth, which I, I've, um, it's, I've laid out three myths, and this would be the first. And it's that our, our, our vocation will not change, that we get kind of one job description, one mission statement from God, and it, and it stays the same through the course of our lives. And I suggest instead that the Christian life is like the, the work of the jazz soloist. We don't know exactly <laughs> what's coming. We have our chance to improvise, but when our moment comes, we know how to play well because we have been practicing And I shared some stories of of believers who I think have done that really well as they've faced uh, changes, sometimes radical changes, in their own lives. The second myth that I want to spend some time talking about today is the myth that your vocation as a Christian must be explicitly religious in nature. That the job that you do must be clearly religious in the church. I shared on Tuesday that at age 22, I had recently graduated from from college and I had managed to get through four years of undergraduate without even thinking about what I would do for work upon graduation. And so it it was an intensely anxious time in my life. I didn't know what God wanted me to do. I didn't know what he wanted me to do with my time and energy and skills. And so I I prayed this anxious prayer in the midst of that summer after graduation. Lord, if you just make it really clear, I will go be a missionary in some overseas impoverished country. Maybe it's dangerous, but I will do this work for you. And Uh, As I said Tuesday, the Lord was gracious in not answering that prayer because probably the life of an overseas missionary is one of the the jobs that I am most ill-suited for. But I think what part of what was inspiring that, that anxious prayer was the belief that my work had to be explicitly religious. I believe that a lot of us walk around with a caste system of callings in place. And maybe we don't, we don't call it that, but I think it's implicit and it's very strong in, in Christian communities and subcultures. The caste system of callings goes something like this. At the top of the caste, the, the most noble and prized type of worker is the, worker of the, the work of the pastor. 
ideally the, the senior pastor or the lead pastor. You're clearly sharing the gospel. You're clearly having a kingdom impact. Well, if you can't be a pastor, then you could be a missionary. That would be great. You know, you're clearly evangelizing. You're doing really crucial, important kingdom work. And the more dangerous and the more difficult, the better. You know, these are the heroes of the faith, right? The, the missionaries who go into countries that are hostile to Christianity, uh, where they're facing persecution, or where only 0.3% of the population has ever heard the gospel. So they're pretty high up there, the missionaries. Then, you know, if you can't make that work, and let's face it, very few people can, it would be great if you worked for a nonprofit. I mean, it's not as spiritual, but it's, it's clearly good. You're, you're serving your neighbors. Uh, maybe you work for a business with a social good component, you know, where you're employing uh, people living in impoverished countries and you're giving them uh, a living wage. That's, that's fine. And then beyond that is everyone else. We lack a framework for naming the goodness and even the holiness of ordinary work done in the world outside of the church. Now, this caste system that, that we have inherited has very deep roots in Christian history. The word vocation, we, we talked about on Tuesday from the Latin vocare, or to call, has typically in church history been used to refer to a special calling to the priesthood or to join a religious order, to live a set-apart life as a monk or a nun. Those were the people who received their vocation. In the early and medieval church, the monastic movement let Christians drop everything in, in the way that James and John did when they encountered Jesus as they were fishing, and he told them to follow me. And so they dropped everything to follow him. The Christians who were called to the monastic tradition lived lives separated from worldly cares and pursuits. They formed separate and separated communities of, of worship. And oftentimes, these communities were marked by a sort of bodily denial, the denial of sexual intimacy in marriage, uh, chastity and celibacy was typically a part of these, these callings. The denial of food and drink um, in order to pursue spiritual holiness. And so in this long tradition, vocation was really only a call for a few people. The monastic tradition treated vocation as something meant for Christians who lived on a higher plane of intense spiritual living, I think of it like CrossFit for the spirit. And let's be honest, only a few of us can really do CrossFit, either physically or spiritually. And when you encounter these people, they want to talk to you all about how amazing CrossFit is. So Lord, spare us from becoming CrossFit Christians. The reality is that most believers throughout history have not been able to abandon everything to join monasteries or religious orders. If everyone dropped their former way of life, who would catch the fish? Who would milk the cows? Who would tend the crops? Who would change the diapers and feed the babies? Most everyone does not 
up to this day, does not have the option to leave behind their families and their communities to be separated, to live in separated communities. Last year, we spent a lot of time honoring the legacy of Martin Luther, the most prominent and, as many believe, radical uh, reformer of the 16th and 17th centuries. And he and other reformers, I think, radically and rightly broadened this Christian understanding of vocation. Luther upheld the priesthood of all believers. And along with two other core reformed doctrines, sola scriptura and sola fide, Luther asserted the teaching that if a person is in Christ, he or she receives a calling as important as the CrossFit Christians, as important as the spiritual superstars. He was the first theologian to use the word vocation to refer to what even today we think of as secular offices and occupations. He dignified the work of the manual laborer, the person who works with their hands. And it should be said that even today we're tempted to think of manual work and manual labor as lowly or unimportant. He wrote, the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not defer one whit in the sight of God from the works of the laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. All works are measured before God by faith alone. Luther's teaching effectively broke down the sacred and the secular divide, the divide between a set-apart holy community and everyone else where most of us live our daily lives. Instead of there being only a few holy types of work. Luther taught that all places, all places in the world, and nearly all types of work could be holy if done with a love of God and neighbor and an excellence and integrity and care. And this teaching has profound and I think liberating implications for how we think of our own vocation. Because all of us, if we believe Luther, We carry a call from God as spiritual, as significant as the call given to priests. We become like priests to the world, offering the aroma of Christ wherever we go, in whatever station of life God has placed us in, if we do our work with love and care and and dignity, honoring the dignity of others. Are the very work itself is significant to God. Sometimes when we we talk about integrating faith and work, what does it mean to be a Christian in the workplace, in our daily work? We think that it probably means, well, maybe I put a Bible on my desk and if someone wants to, they can come ask me about why I follow Jesus. Or maybe we think about putting, putting a fish decal on our business card to signal, I'm a Christian. And These things are fine, but I want to say that the work itself is significant to God. Work is not just a means to an end. The work itself is an arena in which God, in his providence, is doing two things. In our daily work, God is providing for humans, which we understand are the crown of creation. Lee Hardy, a philosopher at Calvin College, puts it this way. 
Through the order of social roles, God sees that the daily needs of humanity are met. Through the human pursuit of vocations across the array of earthly stations, the hungry are fed, the naked are clothed, the sick are healed, the ignorant are enlightened, and the weak are protected. By working, we actually participate in God's ongoing providence for the human race. That is one significant reason why our work is important, is other people depend on our work. I live in the Chicago suburbs, and so I traveled several hundred miles to be with you for the last few days. And I think about all the people I depended on to get here. The pilot, a, a really important person who, got, who literally got me here in Toronto. I depended on his precision and his ability to fly a massive plane to get me here safely in the middle of a snowstorm on Monday night. The TSA agents, now they're not often my favorite people. Waiting in the TSA line can be a really frustrating experience, as some of you know. But think of how they kept me and everyone who who passed through the airport that day safe. The designers of our smartphones, (laughs) this is a mixed bag, and we could talk about that maybe in another chapel session. But I needed that access to information when I arrived in Toronto on Monday night to get to where I was going. And then even more more foundational to that, the people who designed the building where I slept that kept me safe from the elements, that kept me warm. We depend on the good work of countless people every day to survive as humans. It's It's that others need our work, our good work, our work done with excellence in order to survive and thrive. So that's one thing that God is doing through our work. The second thing that he is doing is renewing and recreating the whole creation, all of human enterprise. In this reformed tradition that we we get from Luther and John Calvin and Abraham Kuyper, all arenas of human activity are arenas that God is invested in renewing and remaking. God came to save individuals and communities. He came to transform and renew the whole created order. What God is bringing about through his providence, through his care, is shalom. It's this rich Hebrew word that means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. And as God's people, we get to be a part of this renewal work in whatever sphere we occupy in our daily work. Our vocation then, in whatever sphere we occupy, whatever professional line we have chosen, whatever undergraduate degree we have chosen to pursue, is to take up our profession with excellence and attentiveness and care, knowing that God is using us to sow seeds of shalom, to leave little hints of his coming kingdom, of the way that the world should be, to sow seeds of redemption in his world. And T. Wright, the celebrated New Testament theologian, says, we are not just to be a sign and foretaste of ultimate salvation. We are to be part of the means by which God makes this happen in both the present and the future. 
That is the significance of our work. And that is an amazingly, wholly significant task that we have before us. The third myth that I want to present to you is that your vocation is about doing the thing that you find most fulfilling. And I think this is a myth that we inherit as Christians from a a profoundly individualistic society and that has shaped our discipleship and has shaped how we think about calling, even as Christians. Now, I am on the older end of the millennial generation. So because of this, I get to pick on fellow millennials. That's just part of my birthright as a millennial is to make stereotypes about fellow millennials. And I would say my millennial generation is probably more prepared than any other generation in the modern West to want to find the job that perfectly matches our personality and interests and maybe our Myers-Briggs type. <laughs> and this is, this is what a secular definition of vocation has come to mean. It, 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 it has come to be defined as finding the job that is most personally fulfilling and satisfying, that most aligns with our own unique uh, gifts and talents and personality. My generation is definitely more likely than previous generations to want a fulfillment and a sense of purpose in our work, even, even more so than pay. I think my, my father's generation, my grandfather's generation, for them, work was about making an income to provide for your family. The work itself didn't necessarily matter. My, my dad, to this day, does not come home from work thinking, did I find that personally fulfilling? For him, work is about duty and obligation and provision. But millennials have shifted radically in their conception of work. In a 2017 uh, survey by USA Today, 75% of millennials said that they wanted purpose in their work, even if it meant taking a pay cut, that they would do significant, meaningful, purposeful work, even if it meant not making a lot of money. And I think there is a good correction here. I think if, if we believe what the reformers have said about our daily work, we do believe that work is about more than pay. It is about more than prestige. It is about more than getting the corner office. But I want to suggest this morning that perhaps we have made too much of personal fulfillment, of the sense of personal fulfillment. Our modern Western culture, especially compared with other cultures, places extraordinary value on the individual self and the authority of the individual's knowledge and experience. And what does this look like today? We place a very high value on personal freedom, the the freedom to be able to choose what we each feel is right with few external limits placed upon the individual. Our moral frameworks are often centered on what the individual feels is right. This is often called expressive individualism. It's the belief that all people have this unique core of feelings and intuitions, and that every person has the right 
to pursue and express those intuitions. And so when it comes to making moral decisions, what is right, what is wrong, we, we often, maybe without even realizing it, even as Christians, we think, well, if it feels right internally, then it must be right. And this obviously breeds relativism because the things that I often feel are right, you do not find right. You find them to be wrong. And so we need some kind of external belief system, some moral external code to determine what is good for us as individuals and for us as a society. Even in our spirituality in the church, we tend to think of our faith as quote, me and my personal relationship with Jesus. Um, I was in an Uber ride recently, and the driver had on the contemporary Christian music radio station, and I, I know that it was an, probably a source of encouragement for her, but there was a song that came on where one of the lyrics was, this feeling can't be wrong, I'm about to get my worship on. And... <laughs> Okay, so maybe some people know this song. Uh, Jamie Grace, apparently, I learned later. But this feeling that worship, even worship itself, is an individual practice that we engage primarily with our individual feelings. Instead of Christian faith and spirituality being about, I belong to a community trying to follow Jesus, and we're all doing this together in a community that transcends space and time in the global church and in the historical church. I think this individualism uh, informs how we think about calling and vocation. We are prone to listen to just my own little voice more so than we are to listen to the voice of the Lord and the voice of our neighbor. Parker Palmer is a teacher and activist in the Quaker tradition, and he wrote a a very popular book on vocation and calling called Let Your Life Speak. Now, Palmer writes of his own career change a couple decades into his career as a professor. He had gotten pretty successful at it, and yet he, he felt that the work was incongruous with his inner voice, what his inner self and voice told him would be a better fit. And so he left the academy and he became a writer, which he felt more aligned with his true identity. And here's how Parker Palmer defines vocation. He says, vocation doesn't come from willfulness. It comes from listening. This insight is hidden in the word vocation itself, which is rooted in the Latin word for voice. Vocation doesn't come from a voice out there calling me to be something I'm not. It comes from a voice in here calling me to be the person I was born to be. He says our highest calling is to grow into our own authentic selfhood. And I think Palmer's understanding of vocation here, and it it is more nuanced in the book and and in other uh, things that he's written, but here, I think it captures this expressive individualism quite well. That the true self and its true purpose is to be found inside, over and against whatever outside voices might tell us is the most important or the most valuable. 
And here it, it must be said that this understanding of vocation and calling is not available to most people the world over. It is a, a privileged way of thinking about vocation. Last summer, I had the opportunity to travel to Rwanda with a Christian nonprofit called Hope International. Uh, they do micro-enterprise work and development work in, in countries the world over, and they have a, one of their, their biggest uh, operations is in Rwanda. And so we were meeting some of the clients of Hope, people who receive small loans to start their own businesses and to provide for themselves and their families. And it struck me that the, the women and men that we were meeting have probably never asked the question, do I find this work personally fulfilling? And if I don't, what else should I do? For them, their vocation is clear. I must feed my children. I must feed my community members. I must take care of them. I want to suggest this morning that our calling is not always the thing that we find to be most fitting or most fulfilling. I don't believe that inward experience is the most important source of information. It's one source of information, but it's not the most important. As Christians, we know that our inward self and our inward voice is so often removed from truth because we are sinful. We, have, we must interrogate the self because the human heart is a setting of idolatry, is a factory of idols. This is what John Calvin said. In their natural state, apart from grace and apart from the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit inside, our hearts are compromised by various messages, various beliefs and myths that keep us from following the true Lord of our hearts, who is Christ. The most important voice to listen to when it comes to vocation is the voice of God in prayer, in Bible study, in a worshiping community, in conversations with fellow trusted Christians. And the next most important voice to listen to is the voice of our neighbor. Parker Palmer, Palmer says, I, our highest calling is to grow into our, our, excuse me, our highest calling is to grow into our own authentic selfhood. I believe we find our authentic selfhood, our truest self, not by turning inward, but by turning outward toward others, listening and attuning our ears to hear their voice. Our true self is not hidden within, but found without as we follow in the way of Jesus in dying to self for the sake of love. I mentioned Henry Nouwen on Tuesday, and he is one of my uh, kind of icons of Christian faithfulness and Christian living. Another of my icons is Dorothy Day. How many of you have heard of Dorothy? Good. Well, go, go read her autobiography, The Long Loneliness, and you'll probably want to like drop out of school and join a religious order if you do. <laughs> Dorothy Day has provided me with such a vivid image of this Christian vocation found by turning outward toward others. Day was born in Brooklyn. She has, had always lived in urban settings. The city was her home. 
She was the daughter of a journalist and a reporter. And as a teenager and young adult, very early on, she began her own writing career. And she became connected to a group of bohemian friends and leaders who were quite radical in their social and political beliefs. She really didn't have any interest in the church. She saw the formal church as uh, an oppressor, you know, as part of the problem in the world. And she spent a lot of her young adulthood just adrift spiritually. She had relationships with several men. Um, one of them ended in, this, in an abortion, which she writes about. It was this tragic point in her life. And in this adriftness that she sensed, she began to be drawn to the rhythms of the Catholic Church. She started peeking into evensong services or prayer services uh, when she wasn't out on the streets interviewing people and, and leading uh, radical movements of justice. She finally gave birth to a daughter, and that experience of giving birth and of, of bearing life awakened her to a type of joy that made her think the only proper response to this joy is to worship the creator. And she became part of the Catholic Church in her early 30s. Around that time, she met a radical French philosopher named Peter Morin, and he introduced her to, the Catholic, to Catholic social teaching and the tradition of Catholic social thought. And together, they envisioned a place of hospitality and solidarity where Christians could live among the poor and speak up for their rights in a society that so often was willing to use them and neglect them and forget them. And this is how the Catholic worker movement was born. There was a newspaper and then there were several houses that sheltered the poor. And the reason I highlight Day's story here is because I think it highlights for us a universal understanding of Christian vocation. Truly, each of us is called to suffer for love's sake. With so much focus on our inner selves and inner fulfillment and listening to that voice, I wonder if we fail to hear the call to live as Christ did and attend to the needs of our neighbor, knowing that their voice, their needs are more important than our own. Well, how did they do this? She was in solidarity with the people she was serving. She didn't just come in for a few hours, serve in the soup line, and then go home to a comfortable apartment on the Upper West Side. She lived her whole life in discomfort. <laughs> she gave up the comforts, so much of the comforts of modern life, to live among the people she was serving, to understand their needs, to take up their needs as her own. In this way, her solidarity was about so much more than, than charity, than a handout. It was about identifying powerfully and profoundly with the poor. She did this in simplicity. She, she basically took up a call to voluntary poverty in, in uh, founding the Catholic Worker Movement. And she has this line that I think about at least once a week that haunts me. And the line is, if you have more than one winter coat, you are stealing the others from the poor. <laughs> and I have three winter coats, and I think about that all the time. Now, to be sure, 
there is a tension here. It is the case very often that our calling does match a sort of um, inward sense of fittingness or satisfaction. Palmer writes, your calling often centers on the thing you can't not do for reasons that are even mysterious to you. And I think there's something to be said about this. I knew that I wanted to write and work with words because it seemed like the thing that I couldn't not do. Even something that I didn't necessarily choose, but something that was connected to, to really who I believe God created me to be. And so it, it's not that um, all of us need to necessarily take up a call to voluntary poverty, although we could probably do with less. It's not that we should actively choose work that is truly unfitting for us, truly ill-fitting, that is ca- only causing misery and toil. I should never be an engineer, okay? And, and it is for everyone's benefit that I am not. It is kind, a kind of work that is probably uniquely ill-fitting for me. But I think our vocation is, is more simple than we make it out to be. When we truly see the people around us, the people we're in relationship with, do we attune our ears to truly hear and understand their needs? The person in front of you is a direct image bearer of God. And the Christian tradition teaches that we are always to place their needs, our neighbor's needs above our own. That is our vocation. In whatever line of work we find ourselves in, in whatever profession, the most important question is not, do I feel internally satisfied and fulfilled in doing this work? But am I meeting the needs of my neighbor? Am I attuned to the voice of my neighbor? I want to end by sharing a story. Some of you probably know the name Andy Crouch. I think he has spoken on your campus at least once. We were colleagues at Christianity Today magazine for several years, and he's written several books, and he's a wonderful communicator. Andy's sister, Melinda, has a daughter named Angela. Now, Angela has a very rare genetic condition called trisomy 13. It causes developmental delay and dysfunction of the organs. Half of those born with trisomy 13 die within the first week. And early on in the midst of medical tests and lots of conversations that were painful and scary, Angela's doctors told her parents that her condition was incompatible with life. Well, today, Angela is 11 years old. She has defied every expectation for what is uh, predicted for people with her condition. And Andy would credit this with the constant dying-to-self love of her parents. That she has been able to have life. Her life is truly compatible She's not only able to survive, but to thrive because of the self-giving love of her parents and the community that supports them and supports her. 
The idea of keeping constant care of a child who depends on you for everything, everything, is probably not what Angela's parents had in mind in an earlier stage of life when they thought about a fulfilling vocation. What, what would bring me fulfillment? It is probably not a vocation that matched with their, their inward sense of self and self-expression. Their vocation has arrived to them whether they wanted it or not. It has arrived to them unbidden in the form of their daughter, Angela. And it is probably the hardest type of work that they will do in their lives, the hardest call to follow, and yet perhaps the most fulfilling call, truly fulfilling call that they could receive. And here, here is how Angela, I'm sorry, here is how Andy describes Angela and uh, Melinda's life together. He writes, flourishing is not actually the property of an individual at all. Flourishing describes a community. The real question of flourishing is for the community that surrounds Angela, her parents and her siblings, her extended family, the skilled practitioners of medicine and education who care for her, and in a widest sense, the society and nation of which she is a citizen. The real test of every human community is how it cares for the most vulnerable, those like Angela who cannot sustain even a simulation of independence and autonomy. The question is not whether Angela alone is flourishing or not. The question is whether her presence in our midst leads us to flourishing together. And I share that to say that the real test of our calling and the communities that we belong to is the question of how and how passionately we care for the most vulnerable. Are we communities where those who are marginalized or forgotten or who depend on others profoundly to survive and thrive? Are we places that sustain our neighbors in this profound way? We can only find true human fulfillment in our work, in our calling, if we're able to be part of communities that can answer that, yes, I am part of a community that actively works for the flourishing of the most vulnerable members. I want to end with a prayer for the, this community. You have been so gracious to me over the past few days. I'm sad that I have to leave Toronto this afternoon. But I believe that uh, the Holy Spirit is present among you and is making you into a community that sustains and actively works for the lives of the most vulnerable. In here, in, in the broader community, even in Toronto. So let me, let me pray with a word of blessing over you. Father God, we thank you for creating us and loving us and sustaining us in ways that we often don't even see, in ways that are even unknown to us. You are our provider. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to do good work in your world. Thank you that we get to provide for other people's needs. Thank you that we get to be part 
of your work of restitching the world together, of sowing seeds of shalom wherever we may be. We pray that we would be attuned to the voice of you in every season of life, that yours would be the voice that our ears are most clearly attuned to. And after that, help us to hear the voices of the people among us who are not flourishing, who need us, who need us to to speak up for them, who are vulnerable or forgotten. Help us to create a community here at Tyndale that would love and serve the most vulnerable so that all of us together can be flourishing. We know that it is in dying to self that we truly live. And all of this we pray in your son's name. Amen.